Well, when we introduced the book of Esther, uh, if you were here for chapter one, we had a fun night together, and we looked at the satire and the humor of the book. But since chapter one, you may have noticed that it's gotten a little bit more serious. And the reason that it's gotten more serious is because Haman has been introduced, and he's hatched his evil plan to annihilate the Jewish people. And so there's been this looming threat. There's been this hatred from Haman to Mordecai. There's been this edict that's now been given the signet ring of the king that all Jews in every province are to be killed. It's just a matter of time. The clock is ticking. And so the story has grown kind of dark. And even with all of the foibles of the the king and the weaknesses that we can see in the leadership of the Persian Empire, still there is a dark threat. And it is ever looming in the story. But light is about to break through in the story. And the turning point of the book of Esther is chapter 6. Where Esther has, you know, she's stepped forward, but we still don't know how the story is going to end. And she has stepped forward and God is working. God's been working the whole time. In fact, God is at the forefront of chapter 6. Esther is not even mentioned in the chapter She is nowhere really uh, to be found in the chapter. And even Mordecai is a passive participant in the chapter. The hero of chapter 6 is God, because he's been the hero all along. And he's been the one that's been orchestrating events, and he has a way of working things together for good, things that look dark and look bleak. It's as if God is saying in Esther chapter 6, step back, watch out, get out of the way and let me work. And that's one of the biggest things that we all struggle with is to give God true control and to trust him. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting God. It's not trusting yourself. It's not trusting a force. It's trusting the living God. That's what faith is. It's object-oriented. And the reason I wanted you to turn to Genesis is I want to show you a couple of passages that kind of reveal the way that God works, even when someone has, or some people have, evil plans. So I want you to take a look at Genesis 45, just a couple of example verses. Look at 45.5. This is Joseph. He's just revealed himself to his brothers in Egypt. And here's what he says, 45.5 of Genesis. He says, now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God, Genesis 45.5, sent me before you to preserve life. Skip down to verse 7, the same chapter. God sent me before you to preserve you, a remnant, in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Get this. The Lord took the mistakes of the brothers to save them. Their underhanded scheme against their brother that they were jealous of, God turned that around for the good of them and the nation, their offspring, if you will. Look at verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. Skip over to Genesis 50. Just a, a couple more examples of how this works. Genesis 50 verse 20 is the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament that God works all things together for good. This is what we can know to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So, Notice in in 19 of uh, Genesis 50, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. 
You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so scholars, back to the book of Esther, have said that God is the God of, he's the great exploiter of what man intends for evil. God can exploit it for his good purposes. Now there's so many layers to that that I don't completely understand. Uh, when I think about, you know, all the different things that go on, think about our individual lives. Think about the providential hand of God in your life. Just your salvation alone, your salvation story. Think about the way that you were witnessed to. Was it a gospel tract? Was it somebody at work? Was it uh, a grandmother or a parent that prayed for you for many years? What was it? Uh, was it multiple times? Was it over a stretch of many years that finally you yielded, but God was pounding on the door? Well, that's God's providential hand working in your life. Think about your spouse. You may not want to, but go ahead and anyway. <laughs> that was a joke. Anyway, think about your spouse. Think about, hopefully that's a good thought. Think about how you met one another. Think about, uh, I, I often uh, just ponder meeting Brenda the way that I did and how we both ended up in a certain city. And she was, uh, her dad was in the military, so she really didn't know a stable home for a long time. And she ended up in the same city that I was in and we met at a company and we, we ended up, you know, liking each other, and then it developed. And, but you think of all the things that had to take place for that to occur. And so that is uh, the way that God works. He's a miracle-working God. He's at the forefront, and he has his purposes. And this is what Esther 6, verse 1 says. Now, during that night, Esther 6, 1, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, during that night is the night that is at the end of chapter 5. So here's what happens. It's the night of the banquet, and Esther has had um, Haman and the king over. And look at uh, 5.12. It says, Haman also said, even Esther the queen, let, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, she's almost like a... Who is the wicked queen? Uh, uh, Jezebel. Jezebel who told her hubby, Oh, if you can't have that... that uh, what was it that he wanted? It was a vineyard... It was the vineyard of, uh, I don't even remember his name right now, but he wanted that vineyard, and she said, okay, I'll get you the vineyard. We'll just set it up so he gets killed, so you can have your way. And this is kind of what Zeresh was. So she, she says to him, along with the friends of, of Haman, have a gallows 50 cubits high, 75 feet high, made in the morning, and in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. So get to work on, on these gallows, 75 feet high, and uh, you can go to the king, and you can have Mordecai hanged on it. Then you can go joyfully with the king to breakfast. Actually, it's the banquet the next evening. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. That's, that's the same thing the same night, it says, during that night. So chapter 5 ends with 
the advice from the wife to build the gallows for the arch enemy to die on them, and then you can be happy, and then everything will be okay. Okay, honey? Let me go ahead and pet you. You want your blankie? <laughs> and so during that night, he got to work. There was a construction project, and the gallows were constructed, and that's what's happening. The night, the king could not sleep. Custom-made gallows, made by Haman, we might call him the hangman. We've called him Haman, we've called him horrible Haman, now he's the hangman, because all he can think about is hanging his arch enemy on the gallows, which I told you that may mean impaling. And there are people who believe that the Persians may have even invented some form of crucifixion, and maybe that's what the gallows are, is more like being impaled on a pole. So he's had this construction project going, and maybe during the night he's been singing a song taught to him by his wife, just hang Mordecai, and you'll be happy. Hang Morty. Be happy. And maybe he sang it all night long. Right? And he's going to die. And then when he's dead, he doesn't bow to me like I really want. And so once he's dead, then I can enjoy my steak tomorrow night at Esther's house. How wonderful. Mordecai is going to hang. Right? And the hammer was hammering away. But something else was at work that night. The king could not sleep. I was reading one commentator that called this sleepless in Susa. <laughs> now, we're not told why the king couldn't sleep, but we could come up with some uh, human ideas. The human ideas are that Esther was acting kind of weird. She had come to him unsummoned, he had put out the scepter, and then he had asked her. He had given her favor, and she got the king's grace, and he said, up to half my kingdom, just name what you want, and I'll give it to you, Esther. And she wouldn't tell him. And then she invites him over to this banquet that she's prepared. And Haman and, and the king go over there, and then he says once again, tell me what you want, honey, up to half my kingdom, it's yours. And she won't tell him again. And I don't know if he was replaying that in his head, like, what's going on? Why would she come unsummoned? And then why wouldn't she tell me when I made this gracious offer twice no less? What's going on with that woman? I don't understand. Sleepless in Susa. Maybe, as one other writer suggested, it was the construction noise from Haman's project just down the road, which would be ironic. That was keeping the king awake. But since there's no specific reason mentioned, we would have to argue that God was the one that was keeping the king from sleep. The literal language means that, that sleep fled from him. And the Septuagint version, an ancient version of this text, says that God caused sleep to flee from him. And I think that God can and does do that at times. Sometimes we just can't sleep. Sometimes it's a very human reason, like we're rotating things in our brain replaying events from the day, concerns we have, worries about people, whatever it may be. But sometimes sleep may flee from us because God has something to say to us. And maybe something we didn't see during the day, he wants us to see in the night. And oftentimes when maybe if you're woken up 
and you're, it's not easy for you to go back to sleep, maybe that's a time to pray and say, Lord, what would you have me to pray right now? What are you wanting to show me right now? The king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles of the kings of Persia, and they were read before the king. The chronicles of the kings of Persia were official Persian records of the king's activities and actions. And they were documented much like we would document meeting minutes for a business or some sort of organization. So that's basically what it was. It was documentation of events and how the kingdom or the court responded to those events. And it would, just, it would be similar to reading like the, uh, the health care bill that came down the pike some years ago with however many pages it was. And then we found out that nobody who was commenting on it actually read it. Because nobody wants to read documents like that. It would be like reading a book on various tax codes. And maybe the intention of the king. You know, the king had a lot of options. He had, an, he had a plethora of women at his beck and call in his harem. He could have called for entertainment. He could have called for a midnight snack. He could have called for uh, the best wine. He could have asked for music. He could have had people feed grapes to him. He could have had anything he wanted, and he asked for the book of the Chronicles of the Kings? Are you kidding me? Boring with a capital B. But maybe that was his intention all along was to get something to be read to him that was boring so he could go to sleep. <laughs> Ever been there before? Sometimes it's easy to go to sleep when we're bored. Don't take that personally right now as I'm preaching to you. Please, please don't do that. So the king has this book. The ESV renders it the book of memorable. Memorable Deeds, the Chronicles, the NIV has it as the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, the record recorded official transactions of the Persian kings. It was the record of his reign. So you could imagine like an attendant, a servant of the king in his little nightcap, maybe he's got his pajamas on, could be a cold night in Persia, and he gets out this big book, with these records, and the king's, you know, in his bed, and the king says to the attendant, read me a story. Tell me a story. Read my story. And so, okay, king, page one. On such and such a date, you went out of the royal residence, and you went off over here, and you got an ice cream cone. And then you move. Now, they, would, they wouldn't do stuff like that, but it had to be official business where the king was doing something and so the king is listening. He's in his bed. He's got his blankie and maybe his bottle. <laughs> Put me to sleep. Read me the record of my life. It would be like going over to somebody's house and they play home movies. Have you ever had that happen before? We all enjoy our home movies, right? Our videos when our kids were growing up. But other people... If you don't know this, this would be an insight that you need to take home with you. Other people do not enjoy your home movies. Oh, look at him when he was two and he was, oh, he saw the bird fly over the... No. You may look over at your friends and see this. Now, the record apparently went back 
multiple years. In fact, uh, scholars believe that the record that the king is going to come across is about four to five years old. And here's, this will ring a bell for those of you who have been studying this. And it was found written, so that this attendance reading the record, uh, what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Now, you can write down chapter 2, verse 21, but basically the attendant's reading the record out loud, and he comes to the place in the official record that revealed that Mordecai had uh, revealed an assassination plot against the king. And all of a sudden, the king kind of woke up. It, it caught his interest, and maybe he, he propped up from the bed. And the record of this exposing of this, of this uh, coup, if you will, against the king was revealed and the king said what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this then the king's servants who attended him said nothing has been done for him nothing now we can imagine the king kind of springing out of the bed what do you mean nothing as you study a little bit about Persian kings it was their delight to honor people for serving them and protecting them in fact it, it bode well for their own life. If you took care of your people, then they would take care of you kind of thing. But there was a glaring oversight, and it had happened four to five years before that when Mordecai revealed the plot, even risking his own life, nothing was done for him. Nothing. Zero. And the king was like, this is unacceptable. This is not how we run the Persian Empire. And isn't it interesting that this is the time that this comes out? Mordecai had never been rewarded for something that happened, let's say, five years before. Something that was big and major in the kingdom. And I mentioned when we were in that chapter that sometimes we get overlooked in life. Maybe we didn't get rewarded for something. And Mordecai just decided to put it aside. He decided to forget about it. But do you think he was hurt? He was human. Do you think he was like, wow. They, they will acknowledge and give accolades to other people, but they... They didn't acknowledge me for this. And as time went by, I think he just put it to the side. But in God's providential hand, just at this moment when the king can't sleep, the record comes forth. Now think with me. That very night, what's Haman been up to? Building gallows because he wants to kill Mordecai. And his plan is to get this done, show up at the king's residence, and ask for Mordecai to be killed. Well, during the night, something that Mordecai did to help the king is revealed. And God is doing his master work. No matter what somebody may plot against you, whatever wicked schemes or evil twists that they have, God is in heaven. And God is our ultimate defender and protector. And God is in the timing business and you could say everything about providence is really about timing. And so no honor or distinction or recognition had been bestowed on Mordecai. Nothing, zero. And the king was like, we are going to remedy this immediately. So the king asks, we can imagine that this is the wee hours of the morning now. You know, the king couldn't sleep. Maybe the record was read to him for a while. Maybe he was beginning to doze a little bit. And then the Mordecai thing was mentioned, I don't know, but it's probably the wee hours of the morning, so it's very, very early, is what I would conclude. And the king wants to remedy this problem, and he doesn't seem to do anything without talking to his advisors. <laughs> Have you noticed? 
He doesn't seem to be the uh, sharpest king, the brightest bulb. Uh, maybe he was about as sharp as a basketball. I don't know. But, but here's this king. And so he says, well, who's around? Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. He was still singing his song, right? Hang, Morty. I'll be happy. And he's into the court, and, you know, whistling, and he's ready. He's going to go to the king now. And he had just entered the outer court. Talk about timing of the king's palace. He had stood where Esther had stood a chapter before, and she was getting courage to go to the king unsummoned. And he was going to go to the king, middle of four, in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he had prepared for him. So he was ready. He was going to go to the king. He was going to put this before him and get this done. And the king was looking for someone to talk to about what he had just heard that night as well. Well, Haman just had entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king. And the king was looking for someone to talk to. Perfect timing. You could, you could say, on, on a human scale, we could say, how lucky, how lucky Haman must have felt that the king was looking for advice at just this moment. But was he lucky? Oh, no. In fact, this is going to be very bad for his career. <laughs> In fact, this is going to spell his demise. Well, Haman just then entered the outer court. You can see it as almost like the scenes of a movie. The timing is perfect. It's impeccable. And the king's servant said to him, Behold, look, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. Now it's early in the morning, and there is Haman, and he's got an agenda. He's thinking, this is awesome. The king has called me in. I thought I'd have to wait for a while. He's already having his morning coffee. This is wonderful. This is excellent. And so, come on in, said the king to Haman. You know, it's been said that the early bird gets the worm, but sometimes the early bird gets humbled. Good morning, Haman, come on in. Good morning, perfect timing. This couldn't be more perfect, Haman might be thinking to himself. Oh, my trap is almost complete. But God is setting a trap for the man that set the trap. And that's the business that God is in. Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5, 5. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, Well, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And remember, Haman was probably just about to get it out. King, I have something I want to ask you. But before he could get to it, the king had his own agenda. And Haman just happened to be there, and they happened to have some good morning coffee. Well, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, well, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Oh, of course, nobody. Now, he had some good reasons to think this. On the one hand, he was an up-and-coming guy in the Persian court. The king had elevated him, really, to number two in all of Persia. So it wasn't that far-fetched, right? Haman comes in. He's bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. The king gives him the question. 
And Haman thought to himself, NIV, well, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? My career is on a great trajectory. This is reasonable. Pride, pride, pride. Have you ever thought something was about you and found out that it wasn't about you? You ever been humbled that way? You ever had a notion that something was going on and it was about you and then you found out, oops, it's not. You see, pride is an inordinate, self-consuming way of life. It's thinking that everything in, a li- in life is about you and what you do and how you look and what people think of you. Do you know people don't think of you as much as you think they think of you? Sometimes you think, why does that person look at me that way? And then you find out that person looks at everybody that way. It's not just about you. But that's what pride does to us. We get self-consumed and everything comes back to this one funnel. Me, myself, and I. And Haman thought to himself, well, there's nobody else that the king, I can't imagine anybody else that he would want to honor but me. And so Haman said to the king, well, for the man whom the king desires to honor had to be quick on his feet since you asked. Haman's now completely distracted from his intended purpose. Have you noticed? He had come to the king early. He wanted to be the first one there because he wanted to kill Mordecai, but his pride has blinded him. One writer says, if ever there was a picture of pride going before a fall, Haman is it. And Haman begins to imagine now a royal parade because the king has asked him, well, what should we do for a man that I want to honor? And immediately Haman's thinking, a royal parade. That's what it'll be. I can begin to picture it right now. And so he's got it all in his mind. And I think if you notice how this goes, you will notice that Haman's ultimate idol is self-recognition. It's the thing he longs for the most. And by the way, he gets it from everybody except two people, the king of Persia and a man named Mordecai. He's got it already. He's got wealth. He's got power. He's got influence. He's got everything that someone could want in life. But the one thing he doesn't have is Mordecai doesn't bow to him. So he does some quick thinking on his feet and thinks, well, if the king commands that a man is to be honored in the streets of Persia, and it's a command from the king, then finally, oh, finally, Mordecai will have to bow to me because this will be an edict from the king himself. It will be... The king, some some herald announcing that the king desires to honor this man, so all must bow. And he's thinking to himself, finally my dreams will come true. Before he hangs on the gallows, he's going to bow to me. Oh, I'm going to have my cake and eat it too, and then later I'll have steak at Esther's house. This is glorious. Now Mordecai must bow. Do you see how consumed this man has become with this one thing he does not have? He's got so much other stuff. And by the way, his idol becomes his demise. Satan said to Jesus in Matthew 4, 
all the kingdoms of the world I'll give to you if you'll bow down and worship me. Do you know that Lucifer or Satan was probably, many scholars believe, some sort of archangel? He had power and position, and he fell because of one word. What's the word? Pride. He wanted to elevate himself really above the stars of God. He wanted to be like the Most High. And you're going to watch now because Haman believes that this is about him. So he's going to start making some royal requests. And this is what he wants. Check it out. He says, now remember, he's thinking about himself. He, he thinks he's the man. He says, well, here's what you should do, king. Let them bring a royal robe, which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown. Most believe that this is a, some sort of uh, uh, crown on the horse or crest on the horse has been placed. So I want a headdress on the horse, a royal robe, uh, we're going to have a royal horse. We're going to have a royal crest on the horse. And royal robes, maybe even the idea of a portent of things to come. Here's what I mean. Maybe in his mind he's thinking, you know, if something happens to you, I'm going to get myself fitted for the royal robes because I'm in line for the throne. I'm number two. Oh, let's see how they feel. Let's see how they fit. Let's imagine myself in the royal robes. I'll walk by a couple of mirrors and see how I look. And so he's making this, these suggestions to the king now. Uh, Jonathan took the royal robes off and gave them to David as a portent of things to come that David would be the king. One writer says, there's some evidence from ancient historians that the Persian royal robes, as well as the king's bed and throne, were believed to have the power to impart the benefit of royalty in an almost magical way, close quote. I don't know if that's what Haman was thinking, but he was, you know, planning it out, his royal parade, his dream day. He says, let the robe nine and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, like somebody like Mordecai, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square. Get ready for it, king. Have another sip of coffee. And proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Now, how many of you have seen the VeggieTale version of this? If you haven't, oh, come on, people. Parade him through the city and say to everybody, here is a real great guy that the king desires to honor. He's a really great guy. And, and have one of your noble princes say that over and over and over again through the city square. And all the while, Haman can't help but imagine that he's in the royal robes, on the royal steed, and being dressed and led about by a man named Mordecai. Perhaps every time that Mordecai says the words, this is a really great guy whom the king decides to honor, then Mordecai bows along with all the people. <laughs> this is all playing in his head. Excellent, excellent timing. I knew getting up early would pay off. Well, it's all set up now. Get your notable princes. Well, you know, I think we'll call this Haman's Parade. I, I think it has a good ring to it. And the king said to Haman, Well, take quickly the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew. 
who is sitting at the king's gate, and do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. It sounds good. Do it for Mordecai. <laughs> Can you imagine the facial expression of Haman the hangman? What? It looks like someone just rained on my parade. And not only someone, that terrible Mordecai. He, he goes out to the city streets. Over the royal closet he goes. Now he has to do for the man that he hates what he thought was going to be done for him. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet in John 13, it would appear that he also washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. And as he washed each, each one's feet, there was a lot of tension in that room. People were jockeying for positions. Judas was being, becoming really a pawn of Satan. The disciples were arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest. On and on it went. There was all kinds of spiritual warfare and tension. And Jesus showed us what love is supposed to look like. See, we can imagine that all this stuff should be done for us, and then when it gets turned around, and all of a sudden we have to do it for somebody else, but not just somebody else, somebody that we struggle with, somebody that we couldn't imagine, that we would even give the time of day, let alone treat them with love. Jesus said, what credit is it to you if you love those who love you? What different is that than anybody else? But if you love those who hate you, now that is something. Excellent idea, Haman. I think that you've got this down. Why don't you go and do this for Mordecai? He's right over there by the king's gate, where he always is. Have you ever had your words come back to haunt you? Have you ever began to pontificate or wax eloquent about a situation and then it got turned around? And Well, that is the situation in which Haman finds himself. I'm sure his face fell to the ground and now he would have to do this for his arch enemy. So Haman, if you can imagine the picture, took the robe and the horse he arrayed Mordecai, and by the way, Mordecai, to our knowledge at this point, still has the uh, sackcloth on, the garments of mourning. Earlier, Esther tried to give him regular clothing, and he refused. So, get this, Haman gets to take the garments of mourning off of Mordecai and put royal robes on him instead. Now, get this, Esther put on the royal robes to go and uh, meet with the king, and she's Jewish. And now Mordecai has been dressed in royalty by his arch enemy who's trying to kill him. And maybe we can now apply Mordecai's words to himself. Perhaps you've come into royalty for such a time 
as this. Can you imagine being Mordecai? Haman comes over. This is the guy that's always mad that you won't bow to him. And he says, uh, <laughs> you mind coming with me for a few minutes? Well, what's up? Well, I, I've, I've got to dress you in royal, royal robes and lead you around the city on a, the royal steed with the royal crest. <laughs> Mordecai makes it. Why? Well, they overlook something in the royal records. I don't want to talk about it. Click, 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 click. This is the man, click, 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 that the king desires to honor. <laughs> the very thing he wanted all along from Mordecai, he now finds himself doing in front of Mordecai. Talk about a reversal. The religious leaders the people, we will not have this man to reign over us, they said of Jesus. They would not believe in him. He came to his own and his own would not receive him. They would not bow before him. But the Bible says to Jesus, every knee will bow. And some people that think they will never bow, and they've been shaking their fist at Jesus Christ their whole lives, one day will bow because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will bow to the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And this picture, I think, you can consider at least a foretaste of that. And there is Haman, the man he wanted to kill, the man that bothered him the most because he would not bow. Now he's bowing before him. God is in the reversal business. And so he went through the city. He put the robe on Mordecai. He led him on horseback through the city square. And I don't know how long it went on, but it sounds like for a while. And proclaimed before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Thus it shall be done for the man that the king desires to honor. Talk about falling from your imagined high horse. Talk about eating crow. Talk about it raining on your parade cats and dogs, or more like hail. <laughs> you see, when you fight God, this is what happens. All day long, over and over, New Living Translation. This is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. It's almost like Mordecai was unaffected by the whole thing. Maybe he was wondering the whole time, what's going on? But Haman hurried home Mourning with his head covered. See, the Jews were mourning after uh, Haman had gotten the king to sign that terrible edict. Now Haman's mourning with his head covered. He's in mourning. He's taking the walk of shame. He hurried home. He had to endure this whole thing. The Jews had been mourning because of Haman. Now he was mourning. A poetic, divine turnaround. He takes off Mordecai's sackcloth, but now, in essence, he has it on. Meanwhile, back on the ground, Haman is going wee, 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 all the way home. 
or more like wah, 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 all the way home. Can you imagine coming, he comes to the door? Remember, it wasn't long ago that he was telling his friends and wife <clears throat> how powerful and popular he had become. Yeah, the king, you know, I, I, yeah, I've become, yeah, I'm the number two in Persia. And oh, yeah, I got invited over to dinner, just me, the king, and the queen. Oh, yeah, oh, and I'm going back tomorrow night. Man, I'm popular. Man, things are going well. And Haman this time recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men, I don't know if that's like a, <laughs> a, a crack at these guys, and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin or seed, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Everybody, mark in your Bible, you will surely fall before him, because that is a divine turnaround. The man to whom he wanted him to bow, now his wife and friends say, you're going to fall before him. That is an amazing turnaround. A funny thing happened after I built the gallows and arrived at the palace this morning. You won't believe it, honey. I had to lead this guy all over town. I'm filled with shame. And the wife and the counselors or friends say, if he's of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him. You will surely fall before him. Now, some of you are wondering, how much do these people know about Mordecai and the, the plot against the Jews? Is, is the king completely ignorant of what people uh, he was talking about when he asked the king to sign the edict? I don't know how much the king actually knows. It seems like they knew he was a Jew at the, in the previous chapter, but now... It's like they're saying, oh, if he's of Jewish origin, and maybe it's because of the long battle between the, the Jews and the Amalekites and God always being on the side of the Jewish people, and maybe they're seeing maybe the divine uh, fingerprints or the writing on the wall, and they're saying, oh, if this is how your day went, uh, oops, sorry, honey, bad advice. Uh, you shouldn't have built the gallows uh, because he's a Jew and God's fighting for him and you're going down. Well, when God is fighting for you, you're not going to lose, ultimately. If God is for you, who can be against you? Oh, I know we have an enemy that's strong, and I know we have to put on the armor of God, but you know our enemy? We already know what his destiny is, right? He's going to be in the lake of fire forever and ever. See, his work is going to stop. He's trying to take as many as he can with him now, but one day... He will be dealt with forever. The very thing Haman always wanted Mordecai to do before him will happen in the reverse. In the course of 24 hours, Haman will be disgraced and dead, all because he chose to fight God. Life can change in a moment. You can think that you're going great or you can think you can go, you're going terrible, and God has a way of turning things around. I heard a story of a man who was uh, driving, I think, in Texas, and he was in an automobile accident, and he was knocked unconscious. And so uh, uh, a good Samaritan was passing by and noticed the accident, and the man was still unconscious. So he, he took the man, carefully put him in the back seat of his car, and tried to, to go somewhere to find help. And he found a local gas station, and he pulled in there. The man was still out in the back seat of the car. 
And so he ran into the store to try to get some help. And the man who was, had been in the accident came to, and he's in the back seat of this car. And you know, the last thing he remembers is the cr crashing of glass and everything, disoriented. And he looks up, and it happened to be a Shell gas station where the man had pulled in. But the S on the sign had flickered out. And so it said, hell, open 24 hours a day. Until the man came back with a Snickers bar and it was all right. Anyway. How many people do you think are like Hamans going about their life, pulling some shenanigans, coming up with some evil plots, and all of a sudden, they end up leaving the planet and they stand before the God of the universe? It doesn't take but one heartbeat to end up like Haman. And there's no evidence that he repented. And the final verse for tonight says, while they were still talking with him, so the back and forth, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily, note that word, hastily brought Haman to the banquet, banquet number two with the queen, which Esther had prepared. And just when the story is getting good, you're going to have to come back next week, same bat time, same bat station, because our time is done. But I'll tell you this, it's not going to go well for Haman because God is faithful. And God is keeping his word on a covenant that he made with the Jewish people where he promised that what he started with Abram, he would finish. He made an unconditional covenant. And God has made a covenant with you. If you're a Christian, you're in a new covenant. And God says, what I began in you, I will finish. He who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ. And brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what comes at you in this life, whether it's angels, principalities, powers, height, depth, uh, you know, all those things that are listed in Romans 8, nothing will ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. No devil, no person, no circumstance, no failure, whatever you're facing tonight. God is working. Oftentimes I can look back in my life and see the dots connected. I don't always see them in the moment, and sometimes God works in ways that are not always easy to see, but his divine fingerprints are all over your life if you belong to Christ. He loves you. And what he never hides is his love that he put on display at the cross. That's where he demonstrated his love for you in this, that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. He is going to finish what he started. So hang on. Even when you don't get it, even when the horrible Hamans seem to be getting their way, even when there seems to be these evil, twisted plans against us, God is stronger and God will win the day. Amen? Father, thank you so much for this section tonight. There's humor in it. There's uh, some irony. There's some uh, serious moments as well. But the biggest thing I think we can learn tonight is that when life can look the darkest, you are still working. When the clouds are above us, the sun is still shining. And thank you that you are ever faithful to finish what you started in us, God, even through the toughest seasons. And 
<clears throat> if you're here tonight and you, uh, maybe you're just in a tough season, and maybe it seems like everything's been going haywire and you need a reversal from God, I pray that he would grant that to you. I pray that you'd have faith to wait until that time is perfect in his sovereignty and providence. Lord, teach us to wait on you, to walk with you, to walk by faith and not by sight. <clears throat> but I pray that this chapter will give us uh, encouragement and hope when things are not going the way we'd like. And if you're not a Christian, I would just encourage you tonight to reach out to Jesus, ask him to be your Lord and Savior, tell him that you believe he died on that cross for you and rose from the dead, and trust in him and him alone for your salvation. And just make a commitment tonight, or maybe a recommitment to walk with him, to trust him, because in the end, you will be on the winning side. In Jesus' name.